Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Well, hello and uh, welcome, everybody. It's uh, fantastic to see you here this Thursday lunchtime and to welcome you to the RSA and also, of course, to those hundreds of people who are joining us today online. Uh, This is actually our first hybrid Uh, lunchtime event, so uh, fantastic to be in the house. And the house is a real buzz today. I don't know if you've seen, but the coffee house and lots of events going on. And later on this evening, if you are interested, we also have the Astronomer Royal at six o'clock, Martin Rees, so um, you might want to come back or stay, uh, for that matter. So lots going on, and we're delighted to have you here. My name is uh, Andrea Siodmok. Uh, I am the Chief Impact Officer here at the RSA, and I'm relatively new, I think three months into my role in the house here um, at the RSA. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Bruce Daisley, um, author, and um, also to hear some of his thoughts, uh, really looking to the future and thinking about resilience and thinking about success and lots of uh, other exciting topics, no doubt, that we'll get into. Um, Let me introduce Bruce to you. Um, So Bruce is one of the world's most influential voices on fixing work. His podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, has topped Apple's business chart, and his book, The Joy of Work, was top-selling UK business hardback of 2019. And before that, uh, he spent over a decade uh, both as VP at Twitter and also YouTube in Europe. So Bruce, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's brilliant um, to have you here today. And in terms of how we're going to do it, we're going to have a conversation and kind of dig into Bruce's thinking and latest book, but also then we're going to come to you in the audience and of course to people online as well. So I have my handy iPad here, which uh, will get filled up with questions. Uh, So be thinking about what you might want to ask in due course. But before we do that, I'll just, uh, if you like, we'll warm up a little bit having a chat. If you are online uh, and on Twitter, uh, other platforms are available, um, then you can use RSA success as a hashtag. What a great hashtag you've got there. Mm, I, I think I spoke here, I got RSA Siodmok, which was literally the worst hashtag, hashtag ever because no one could spell it. So RSA success, uh, which is, of course, uh, the theme of what we're going to be talking about as well. Um, and I must say, I adored reading your book. Um, I, I, I liked it so much, I listened to it twice uh, on Audible. Other platforms are available. Um, and... And in some ways, for me, it was quite cathartic. Um, and, 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 and I had kind of lots of aha moments. Um, so there's, there, I'm really intrigued and, and excited to kind of explore your thinking in terms of what, uh, I suppose, led you to the book. I mean, obviously, you've been steeped in thinking about work and what makes uh, workplaces work. But what, I suppose, took you to then thinking about resilience and, and yeah. the role that might play? Resilience is a, a really strange thing in the sense that Discussions about it are everywhere around us. And I found myself gr- very gradually starting to observe that there's a degree of victim blaming to it. Because the notion of res- resilience is that if you've been knocked down, 
what we expect is you're going to get back up again. And I guess the danger of that is that, in principle, it's really laudable, right? It's, it's most definitely what you'd want of any of your friends if they're knocked down, any of your family. But what it misses is that some people are knocked down more than others. And there's an expectation that you're going to get back up if, if something bad has happened to you. That to some extent, diminishes the lived experience. I'll give you a specific example. Um, whether it's resilience or whether it's some of the other things, I, I, I see a lot of the talk that we've got about resilience falling into a bit of a resilience orthodoxy. And there's a book called Grit that was published a few years ago. It's phenomenally huge in the US. Um, and this book, Grit, it effectively by an author called Angela Duckworth, but she is sort of the prodigy of Martin Seligman, who's an iconic American psychologist. And we might immediately imagine when we see psychologists like that, that it's uh, objectively that they're working to, for, for the good of psychology, for the good of the science. But there's a degree of politicisation in the way that they study things and the way that they conclude things that is driven by a sort of post-Reaganite economics. And so their obsession, uh, they talk about grit really clearly in the book. Whether you succeed in life is how much you want it, is broadly the conclusion. Now, the place that they did the majority of their work, they obscure it a little bit, but they talk about it being a major Northern American town, and it's almost certainly Philadelphia, because both her and Martin Seligman teach in Philadelphia. Philadelphia um, has the, the highest poverty rate in the US of any major city. Um, there's a methodology called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Methodology, which is a way to try and categorise, a, a way to sort of measure the the trauma that people have experienced. The average ACE score, um, which is a benchmark of this, the ACE, average ACE score of, of people in Philadelphia is four, which is a, a really astonishingly high level of collective trauma. And yet their conclusion, and they say that the school that they studied in was very socio-economically diverse. The school they studied in, so you've got to presume a lot of the people there have gone through trauma, tragedy, food poverty. 40% of the population of Philadelphia are regarded as being in food poverty on a daily basis. And yet their conclusion is your success in life is determined by how hard you want it. And for me, that feels like it diminishes the lived experience of, of countless people. That actually, it's deeply unempathetic, actually. Um, and that's not to say that I don't think there's a value in any of their work, but I can't help, but my first instinct is the way that the word resilience was being used, I was a bit cautious of. And then to sort of encounter that and think, okay, it's beautifully, it's sold in, in millions of copies, but it misses the nuance of, of what the lived experience of those people is. And so that became my obsession, really. And, and there are so many amazing examples in your book. And I'm, I'm intrigued, really, around this idea that difficulty and, you know, adverse childhood experiences, as you say, uh, may create some kind of uh, trajectory for people in terms of things that they're pushing against. But also this whole idea of the, the sort of super elite athletes and how, um, in the world of athletics or perhaps in other areas, um, how there's a, um, you know, a sort of a conflict really between the two, between yeah. where it's holding people back, but also in some cases propelling people to great success. Yeah, I, I, I was spellbound by all of that research and, and that's why it sort of leads um, the book because I, 
I just find it, it, su it presents such an enigma. Broadly, the conclusion of the research that I looked at was it was research conducted by UK Sport. So UK Sport are the organisation that put British competitors at the Commonwealth Games or the Olympic Games. And the, the one thing that they discovered, they did a piece of analysis where they were thinking about doubling and trebling the investment in British athletes. And so one of the things they wanted to know is where do we spend the money? Um, and they, the, the lead researcher, a guy called Tim Rees, uh, Professor Tim Rees, uh, who's fabulous, and uh, he, he said they very much were looking at it like an investment portfolio. Where can we put our best money? And so one of the things they did is they commissioned this piece of work uh, called the Great British Medalists Report, and they studied what were the characteristics of people who'd won gold medals. And they compared them to people who'd gone to the same games, had the same funding, but come away at best with bronze or silver medals. And the thing that's sh show-stopping is that 100% of those who'd won gold medals had experienced a significant moment of childhood trauma, normally associated with a sporting success. I think that's an important emphasis. Anyway, uh, in comparison, only a quarter of those who'd won bronze or nothing or silvers had, had the same. So at the very least, it, it bears examination because if you're not careful, you could very easily find yourself opening a book which is about resilience, which is drawing a teachable lesson. How can we all be a bit more like this? How can we all get back up? And what you find is, um, broadly, the experience of trauma, the experience of adverse experience, is that it shatters our sense of self. It serves to sort of desynchronise us from the people around us. And in these rare instances, in these freak instances where it coincidentally landed on someone who, in Andy Murray, was victim of the Dunblane uh, mass shooting, or survivor of it. Um, in the, the instance there, he's a world standard tennis player. And so what it becomes for him is it becomes this redemptive way that he tries to quieten the noises and he becomes incredibly focused in his abilities. But the critical thing is that, you know, while you might say Tom Daly, his father died when he was 15, when you, you might say, you know, the biography of Mo Farah now makes much more sense. Bo Mo Farah, we discovered a couple of months ago, was a victim of human trafficking and child slavery. And so we might now look at the biographies there and say, OK, so someone who has, unfortunately, the victims of trauma often experience shame as the, the abiding experience. So they've gone through this, they feel shame and they focus all their energy doing what Kelly Holmes said she did. She was in a children's home. She was victim of long-term racism and, and abuse. She said, sport became my identity. So it's this unfortunate uh, episode that is, coincides with an elite level of talent. And you know, I think through that, we can see the redemptive power of owning our identity. And that becomes a really big theme in any of us understanding childhood experience. But I think, the reason why I addressed it is because not addressed, it could very easily make a sort of gr a ripping yarn about how can we all be more Mo Farah and missing the, the real gravity of the experience of those people, really. Yeah, absolutely. So they become role models, but actually that isn't something necessarily that is a straight trajectory for everybody yeah. in, in terms of having more of those, those challenges. Um, and I think one of the things that you, you talk about is this idea that Resilience is in all of us, and so, you know, there is a sort of something quite human about that. But also, um, you know, there is a, there's a. It's almost as though there's a whole field of um, writing and self-help around just, you know, just be more resilient. I mean, I, I, I distinctly remember 
being in a local government event in 2012 and uh, it was concluded that we needed communities just to be more resilient and I just thought what is that you know and I had to go and look it up and I was like well, yeah. you know, what is resilience so I mean I suppose in terms of your research and unearthing all of this how you know how would you frame it how yeah. you know and what takes you to fortitude um, as, a, as a perhaps a different way of looking at it. Yeah, um, I had um, a couple of experiences during lockdown. So you remember you weren't allowed to see people for months at a time and then you were given permission to sort of, you know, go and sit on a bench with someone. Uh, and, uh, but during that time, I chatted to a couple of people and, um, and uh, I said to people, I'm writing a book on resilience. And helpfully, twice, people rolled their eyes. I thought, oh, okay, okay, the, the, I, I need to do more explana uh, explaining. The guy who came to fix my Wi-Fi said something to me which stuck in my head. He said, never in the history of calming down has someone calmed down by being told to calm down. And, uh, and I, think, I think resilience is a little bit like that. No one's been resilient because someone told them to be resilient. And actually, like you say, it's really unhelpful. What do you mean being resilient? I'm trying my best here. Or, you know, be, be resilient. What, what am I not doing that you want me to do? And broadly, if I was going to simplify everything, you know, aside from the identity part I've talked about, aside from the fact that sort of having a degree of personal control is really vital, if I was to boil it all down, resilience is the strength we draw from each other. And as soon as you recognise that resilience is a collective strength, rather than this individual thing that some of us have got and some of us haven't got, as soon as you recognise that, these examples of it everywhere around you. Um, I always think of the people in Ukraine. And, you know, we sit there thinking, I'm not sure I could do that. I'm not sure I could. And yet, there's a mundanity to the way that they sort of have set about trying to defend who they are and, and what's happening to them. There's an everyday quality to it. Um, and it's because resilience is a collective strength. I'll give you another example. Um, one of the world's leading experts on teenage mental health is a woman called Jean Twenge. And she's, you know, she writes very directly she's she's critical of some of the the ways that society is impacting teenagers her big viral article was how smartphones destroyed a generation so there's, there's no punches being pulled but there was a really interesting piece of analysis that she published last year about the pandemic and we'll go rewind the clock so this was sort of like in the first decade of the pandemic this was sort of like right at this so this was you know probably if i asked any of you to talk about the pandemic you'd say you know mental health crisis but so I'm rewinding the clock right to the start. So imagine the scene, you're queuing outside a supermarket to go and buy a four pack of toilet rolls. In the morning, someone's been sent out to forage for pasta shells. And, uh, and, and in that first stage, when we were sort of weirdly at home doing bread making, jigsaw puzzles, things that we never thought would figure in our life again. Um, in that stage, she, she explored teenagers. And what she found was teenagers who felt connected to their families by having a family meal every day, their depression went down and their resilience went up. And it's another example. When we feel connected to other people, that's when we feel resilient. And so, you know, for all the firms who are saying, we're sending workers on resilience courses, for all the schools saying, we need to get resilience into these kids, actually making them feel, anyone feel more connected to other people is the answer that's sitting in plain sight in front of us, I think. It's amazing and very much chimes with the RSA's work around bringing community together and bringing people together. Mm. You know, our whole mission is about bringing people and ideas together to make change in the world. So that goes back hundreds of years in this organisation. So it's so refreshing to kind of have that, um, you know, reminded, I suppose, in all of us. But, I mean, you mentioned Ukraine and if, 
you know, I don't think any of us can forget seeing families being torn apart on train platforms and, you know, that, as you say, that sort of sense of the bigger purpose mm. and people coming together, that, you know, dividing families but also uniting at the same time. And then when we think about the last, you know, number of years, let's say, and the kinds of big challenges that we're facing, whether it be COVID and the way that that divided us, or whether it be thinking about politics and the sense of divide that exists across the world at the moment. But also, you know, bigger issues like, you know, climate change. I suppose in that context, what, what lessons do you draw from all the research and all the places you've been looking in terms of how we might work together and be more successful and find that positive future where we flourish as opposed yeah. to flounder? Yeah, well, well, that sense that we're all in it together, I think, is a really critical part. That sense that the sense of us, you know, shared social identity is the way that you describe it, but that sense of us seems to be really protective. And, you know, governments and societies who managed COVID well seemed to create that sense. And we really witnessed it right at the start of the pandemic when, you know, God forbid, we were joining WhatsApp groups with neighbours, you know, like it had been part of our essence in life that we were never going to speak to our neighbours and now we're in a, a WhatsApp group with them. It's sort of like a, a really interesting way of forging that sense of togetherness or, you know, people going out and applauding for the NHS creates very gently, but it creates a sense of togetherness. And you, you witness as those things dissipate, that sense of shared objective um, suffers. And so I think that's just an important lesson, really. It's definitely a lesson for an era of hybrid working. Um, I saw this beautiful phrase, and, and anyone who speaks Hebrew will, will know the word simha, which um, there was a beautiful talk by the late chief rabbi, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, really thoughtful, wonderful individual. And he talked about how, in terms of passing down the, the history of, of the Jewish people, shared moments of togetherness are one of the ways that you create a sense of enduring culture, en enduring community. And so it's simha, uh, these shared moments of joy, um, parties, bar mitzvahs, weddings, and you know we neglect these at our peril because those moments of coming together and having fun around other people do far more. It, it almost seems invisible the benefit they provide, but it creates this sense of us. So you know, for organisations or for schools, those moments that might seem for organisations, you know, the idea of getting people together for you know a meal together might seem trivial and something you can put a line through but probably if you're trying to forge your sense of resilience of fortitude of, of togetherness they're the probably the most important parts on the calendar i think it makes me think that you know if you're trying to look at a star you don't look directly at it you might look adjacent to it so if mm. we want to get to resilience we might have to actually look elsewhere where you can create that yeah uh, experience with it is as you say through having shared meals or yeah um, similar to happiness in that way isn't it uh, the idea that you reach it obliquely you don't reach happiness by setting out in the morning saying i'm going to be happy you do it by thinking what are the activities that make me happy and it's similar to that i think yeah lovely and, and also that sense i suppose of you know the culmination of small activities as opposed to being something that you have to study or mm. you know um or even have you know i mean i suppose there's one question that i'm intrigued about is about whether everyone starts with the, in the same sense. I mean, is, is, there a, um, is there a privilege that comes into all of this that we might need to look at as well in terms of those who are disadvantaged and how we might level the playing field, if you like? Yeah, no doubt. And, and that's the benefit of the Adverse Childhood Experience Index. Um, just at the very least, the methodology of, of ACE, Adverse Childhood Experience, 
and you know it's it's a research methodology but it's incredibly helpful it um, it was created by a couple of american physicians and one of whom was working in a weight loss clinic and the other one was dealing with us uh, veterans and the the guy who was dealing with veterans um, recognized that there was a massive amount of what he described as self medication that the these former soldiers were smoking a lot and drinking a lot and he thought, I wonder if that's related to the trauma they've experienced. And they're kind of self-medicating with the things they're taking to try and sort of delete the impact of it. Um, the the uh, guy, Vincent Felitti, who was dealing with the weight loss clinic, by accident, he, he was dealing with these incredible bounce backs that people would lose 150 pounds and then would put it all back on. And he was really frustrated by it because he felt like he was doing incredible work. He was getting patients down from 20 stone to 10 stone. And then all of a sudden they were back up to sort of 18 stone. And he stumbled into, um, he, he formed a questionnaire that he quite assertively used to ask people. And he discovered by chance that 56% of his patients had experienced sexual abuse as a child. It's like, wow, okay. And he looked, where was this anywhere in the literature? It was nowhere in the literature. And, you know, it's an interesting thing when you look at the Supreme Athletes, actually. There's a really interesting piece, piece of work that I chatted to a, a Canadian doctor, and he said, amongst people who've experienced sexual or physical abuse as a kid, their propensity to take performance-enhancing drugs is uh, nine and five times higher. Um, and, and those two things, if they've had both, that those two things multiply, multiply with each other. And so, you know... Firstly, you get an indication people who win gold medals through taking performance-enhancing drugs, maybe there's a reason why they found themselves crossing the line into those things. Um, because it's about self-editing, it's about sort of trying to redeem your sense of, the broken sense of self you've got. So I think absolutely no one starts from the same vantage point. And I think, you know, broadly, I guess if the lesson is uh, understanding resilience is about empathy and connection, then I think that's the most important thing, really. Yeah, it's really interesting in the way that you described that as well around, you know, I think there was someone who was sleep eating was another example mm. that you raised. Um, but even going back and say, for example, thinking about schools and meals, you know, certainly when I was at school, there were, there were two lines. There was the line for the children who couldn't afford school meals and had free school dinners. And then there was a line for children who wow. could afford that. And I, and I read recently of a, of a child who wasn't eligible for support for their school meals and so took a lunchbox an empty lunchbox and pretended to eat um, to be part of that community right. and not to be someone who was in some sense ostracized and therefore didn't have that protective mm. um, being part of something and, and, and one of the things I it really came out of your book for me was this idea of storytelling and uh, and the need for those stories um, in terms of you know, sort of an explanation, I suppose, and how we tell ourselves stories, maybe from our past and also from our communities, and, and this hunger, if you like, for storytelling. So, I mean, are there reflections you have perhaps about that, you know, how that works in terms of individuals, but also our broader yeah. narrative? It's really interesting. If you ask people to tell you their life story, and it's just an aggregation of random events, what you generally find is there's a, is there's a less substantial sense of personal pride and identity and the, perfect, the, the sort of protective elements that come from that, uh, from that. It's really interesting in the biography, in the first memoir of Barack Obama, he tells about his own recognition of how important identity is in, in personal strength. He talks about how Barack Obama is mixed race, his mum and 
His, his mum lived in Hawaii. He was raised by his mum and his grandmother in Hawaii, and uh, white mum. And he, he only met his, his father, his African father, once um, when he was 12. And uh, he, he, when he first went to college, that was the first time he'd really encountered people from his, uh, from his Afri African-American roots. And he, he talks about how he really struggled to connect with them. And it's a really interesting passage where he talks about how it was only when he decided, after being very directionless at college, you know, it's sort of his lost years, he's an important part of Barack Obama's uh, identity, and he decided that firstly he was going to rename himself from Barry. Uh, Barry Obama was what he was called in Hawaii, and he, he said, you know, in respect to his father's identity, he'd call himself Barack. And he went and did community work, and he said for the first time, because his identity, identity now was sort of more vividly expressed, it was the first time he felt that directionless was gone from him and, it, and he felt some sort of connection with who he wanted to be. So I, I find that just a really interesting example because, you know, while sports people might not be always relatable for most of us, actually to see how someone like Barack Obama struggled with uncertainty and, and lack of direction, I think he gives hope to anyone, really. Yeah, amazing. And you mentioned Mo Farah as someone else whose identity has been mm. a key part in... Um, you know, that journey that we all go on as well. Um, and I suppose one of the things um, I'm curious about, if having, in, in a way, the brilliant thing about your book is that you've done all of that research and so, you know, it makes, it makes for, there's, there's so much in it, um, uh, which is why I read it twice. And I, and I would encourage, because some books just have, you know, there's, there's one theme, if you like, mm. that they just repeat and over and over, but there's so much in it, so I encourage people to read. But if you were to think about the book and, um, you know, what, I guess what sort of key stories or what key examples have stayed with you, you know, having completed um, the book? And, um, yeah. yeah. If I sort of discount the idea of individualistic resilience, then the idea that feeling connected to other, other people is protective actually comes out really strongly in everything. And so, you know, whether that is, if you look at people who've suffered heart, heart operations or heart attacks or major episodes of depression, the biggest predictor of how well they'll do three and five years afterwards is how many groups they report feeling part of. And so that's the thing that lives vividly for me. You know, it's really made me focus on organising that reunion of that group of friends there, of making sure I participate in, in, in that activity more. And it's made me think about how important a sense of connection to other people is. Um, and made me focus on that. And it makes me very aware of it when I see other people around me who are struggling. I think, OK, well, you know, is there a social cure for this? Is there a social aspect that we can help this person get back on their feet? And I think that's been, you know, the most inspiring thing for me because I feel, I end up feeling quite annoyed with these sort of individualistic ideas of resilience. This idea that someone who, you know, one of the people who rolled their eyes at me when I told them I was writing a book on resilience, she said, I got sent on the resilience course when I told my boss I was having a hard time. I don't feel any different but now I'm scared to tell my boss because she'll, she'll think it's the problem with me, not the problem. And that's really toxic for me, that idea that someone can feel directionless, down, isolated, and yet through the way that the mechanics of this has been set up, they now feel that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. Rather than thinking, rather than being told, look, 
there's, there's actually some lovely evidence of this. I'll give you another example. If you can look at, uh, we, we would all probably say, uh, you know, if you've got a group of people in an old people's home, getting them to do a weekly aerobics course would be good for them. Sort of good, get, no, the interesting thing is, uh, what, what researchers did is they did a piece of work saying, okay, well, we know that the people who do this aerobics course seem to show some uplift in their well-being. But how about if we do another group alongside it, which is people gathering for a reminiscence class? So this is called an active control group because you, you're gathering people in a group situation, they're doing something, but the only instruction was they had to be seated throughout. And what you found was the uplift in well-being was exactly the same from the reminiscence class as it was from the exercise class. Now, wow, that's really fascinating because, you know, first it shows what simple interventions there are here, just making people feel connected. There was a beautiful article in The Guardian today about men's sheds. And men's sheds are um, not the sort of literal structure, but they're a way to try and get men of a certain age who become more and more isolated. Most men over the age of 40 report only having one friend outside their partner. And so trying to get men above that age to feel like there's a no-pressure way to connect with other people. And so men's sheds started in Australia. This idea that come along, there's a little workshop that we're all working on, little craft projects every Thursday at nine. And what, what's discovered is actually this is incredibly healing for the people who go along. They, they make new friends, they connect with other people in a low pressure way. Um, and just another illustration really, that idea of um, forging social connection, maybe when sometimes people don't necessarily see the need to do it themselves, seems to be incredibly helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it was last week we had our Albert Medal, which we awarded for social prescribing and this idea of not necessarily turning to the big pharma for your solutions. And, and sometimes, you know, medication helps, but also recognising the healing power of that social and community and how you might get an abundance of that in having more, the more of it, the better, really. Um, but, I mean, clearly a lot of your thinking over time has also been about workplaces. And I'm, I'm curious to know whether there's insights really from both the work point of view as well as, you know, I mean, so many organisations are trying to grapple right now with the yeah. hybrid working. And, you know, I always think organisations are a bit like jelly. They wobble and then they go right back exactly as they were before. And to some extent, I think after COVID and lots of the changes that happen, our organisations have gone back a yeah. bit. But if we wanted to go forward and flourish and really develop the, the sort of positive environment, the creative environment, the collaborative environment you describe, you know, what lessons do you draw between the, those two areas, if you like, from your last book and then yeah. also from this? It's really interesting. I worked for a long time in tech firms and, and the, the truth of most technology when it comes along is that you're first dazzled with the opportunity it presents. It's like, oh, wow, this is going to be so exciting. It's going to do all these good things. And then slowly and sort of dawningly unexpected consequences start springing up. You know, when I first worked at Twitter, it felt like a frivolous place that Stephen Fry was sending updates of what he was up to. And then when I left, when I was leaving, it was sort of like existential threats to democracies, like unexpected uh, twists in it. And, um, and you know, there's, there's some elements of what we're doing, living through at the moment, that look a bit like that. I personally think... We're, we're, the relationship we've got between ourselves and our jobs is changing. It's shifting from the relationship similar to the relationship we had at school, with school, uh, to the relationship we had with college. 
Um, with school uh, governed by timetables, governed by being in a certain place at a certain time, certain number of days always in the office, someone would scold you if you weren't back at your desk at a certain time. But it was an immensely tightly knit community. These were the people that you will remember the rest of your life, best friends. We're moving to something, and work used to be a bit like that, uh, moving to something like college where, where you do the work, when you do the work, is largely down to your own autonomy. And it makes us realise how work infantilised us, actually, to, to a large extent. Um, and the, the social connections you have there are slightly looser. So um, fewer people, people who work hybrid now, only 17% of them report having a best friend at work. And the biggest predictor of whether you're happy in your job is having a best friend at work. So, you know, so look, superficially, what are the upsides of that? Actually, maybe we're going to get a more healthy relationship with work, that work isn't the defining part of our identity. My sister used to say to me, she came, uh, she lives in Birmingham, she came to live in London for a couple of years. She said, everyone in London introduces themselves by saying what their job is. And she said, that's not normal. You know, <laughs> I don't know what any of my friends do. Uh, like, and, and so, you know, okay, right, work was our identity in a way that was so enmeshed we didn't even know that it was. Now, if we're moving to an era where that's less the case, maybe that's more healthy. The danger is those close relationships are great if we replace them with close relationships in the community and with friends. But if, we've, if we replace them with a void, then it's really dangerous. You know, one of the people I'm really inspired by was, is a woman who runs the A&E department, the emergent department at the Whittington Hospital. Brilliant woman called Dr Heidi Edmondson. And uh, she, I, I went in and did a session with them during COVID because they were, they were experiencing, they'd brought in, genius insight, they'd brought in cabin crew from, B, from grounded BA flights um, to help them deal with difficult patients because they said aggression by people being more isolated than ever before, patient aggression was off the charts. So you wouldn't ex necessarily associate that, but when we have fewer casual interactions with strangers, we start becoming, the evidence suggests, far more aggressive and hostile with those interactions. So they'd got these cabin crew in, because cabin crew have no power to do anything if they've got a difficult customer. They've got to try and use words to negotiate the situation. The soonest most planes could land is two hours time. So you can't, you can't deal with some, and so they'd brought in this cabin crew to help teach them. And I think through that, through that sort of prickliness that we're seeing in people is an indication that fully hybrid work or fully remote work is, has definitely a lot of really good upsides to it, but we just need to make sure it doesn't lead to people feeling more isolated, I think. Yeah, it's really helpful. Um, thinking just differently, perhaps yeah. as a, a sense of a community college as opposed to being back at school. Mm. <laughs> so look, um, that's been amazing. Um, I'm going to open up now to questions. Um, I'm going to have a quick look and see what questions we have from our online audience, if I can turn on the iPad. <laughs> um, which I have, which I can see. Let me see. Okay, so um, I'll take one online and then I'll take three um, from the audience. Um, in fact, what I'll do is I'll take one online and two from the audience and then you can respond to those yep. as a little bunch, if that makes sense. So um, the first one I've got from online um, is how should companies think about creating moments of connection for their people, given the reality of hybrid working? So it's very much building what I was saying there. Um, especially when facing 
the imminent possibility of a winter of COVID. So um, that idea, I suppose, of connecting those boundary rituals and those kind of social moments, but also um, with perhaps more hybrid coming. And then if, um, if I take two more, if people want to raise their hands, so um, up front here, yeah. Um, Oh, we just need the microphone. Apologies. Thank you very much. That was really interesting. Um, so you do, I agree you hear a lot of resilience talk these days. And part of the problem is that the people who are asking you to be resilient are the people who are generally knocking you down, right? It's the abusers telling the victims to be resilient. And a lot of that seems to be about misdirection which I don't see you particularly addressing, because again, you have a toxic work environment and your boss is an asshole and they're telling you to go away to a resilience class, but then potentially, are you telling them to go and make more work friends? Or are we missing the actual problem, which is that the boss is an asshole? You said you would take controversial and kind of big yeah, questions no. as well. There's the gentleman over we'll come there. Back to that, yeah. Sorry, if we just do this one yeah. first and then, yeah. Thank you. Very thought-provoking, thank you. So are you saying that um, to be extraordinarily successful, you need to have had a trauma in childhood? Or that to be extraordinarily successful, you need to have a community around you that supports your resilience? Or is it a combination of the two or something else? So what are the yeah. key drivers of extraordinary success? Or key factors? Yeah, okay, absolutely. Um, I'll, uh, I'll answer the, the, this one first because I think this is sort of the, the one that's um, actually sort of most spiking and worth addressing. No, far from it. I'm not being an apologist for toxic uh, regimes. In fact, the, the institution of... Broadly, any organisation right now... Um, the incidence of resilience training is off the charts, but it's also in schools. So I spent a couple of evenings going through the syllabuses of schools, and pretty much every school has got a website, and almost all of them mention resilience and its sort of sister growth mindset. Um, that all, almost all of them mention it. And no, far from it. I think that in, uh, implementation of these programmes tries to give a get-out-of-jail card for toxic regimes, regimes. Because rather than saying, let's understand the lived experience or why there's a need for these things, let's just presume that we can delete them, we can wipe them out. You know, I'll give you one example that's perfectly adjacent to what you're saying. I did a session with one firm, and they said, we like to start meetings with a mindful minute. And I said, OK, what's that? And they said, yeah, we spend one minute doing mindfulness. Now, I, I chatted to a mindfulness expert, and I said, look, this sounds to me like the biggest hoax in history. The idea that, and some people were on their phones in the mindful minute, but the idea that somehow, you know this is really bad every day, there's 40 hours of meetings a week, 400 emails to deal with, but we do that minute. So, you know, if, and it's an attempt to blame the victim for the toxicity that they're surrounded with. So, so you know, forgive me if that's not come clear. I, I, um, I feel the whole dialogue about resilience ends up blaming a victim for the obscene situation that they often find themselves in. So I, I very strongly feel that. I, I was in, uh, my partner's Lebanese, and we were in Beirut a couple of years ago when there was this phenomenal explosion that ripped through the city almost exactly two years ago. And, um, 
and all of the narrative the next day. And the, the Lebanese people have had just had the worst few years. The economy's worthless, the currency's collapsed, um, and yet yeah, all of the narrative the next day, that, and they were desperate. This explosion had called decimation. You know, the sand for two days was people sweeping up glass. They were desperate for the international community to extend a help, uh, helping hand and say, look, we're going to help you. And in fact, all that happened was no, no countries really helped. And all that happened was all the coverage said, well, we know the Lebanese are resilient. And there's two things about that. If they don't get back up, and you know, what choice have they got? If they don't get back up, people will say, well, we were right not to help them because they didn't really try. And simultaneously, it just creates this myth. One of the people who I quoted said, we're fed up of being resilient, F resilience, we just want to live our lives. And, you know, th that's my feeling. It sort of creates this, this apology uh, for, for, um, for toxicity. And I think under, that's why I say, you know, if I say anything about resilience, it's about empathy and connection, understanding that people's situations are, are often abysmal and then understanding the power of connection. In terms of the, the role today, um, so I guess the reason why I address the elite athletes is to try and delete some of the false stories that we get. And we love these redemption stories. We love these resilient stories. All of the superhero characters that we see on screen, their mum and dads have died, but they bounced back to do greatness. All of the athletes that, you know, someone was talking to me the other day and they said, if you watch an Olympics package in the US, it'll be like, here's how they... Every X Factor package that you've ever seen, in the, they've got knocked down, but they've got back up again. And unless they've got the, the, the bad part of the story, then we can't enjoy the good part of the story, is the assumption. And I think it was just to try to correct that, that idea that, oh, absolutely, okay, there are some episodes that we can draw upon, but it's far more complicated than that, I think is my point. So what you find with these people who've experienced significant childhood trauma, the harm of the trauma still lives with them. They, they often experience the things that we know, you know, in the, adult child, uh, in the Adverse Childhood Experience Index. If you've got a score of four, uh, you're twice as likely to get cancer, you're twice as likely to get heart disease. If you've got a score of six, uh, your lifespan is on average 20 years younger. It explains 50% of addiction to alcohol and drink. So, you know, trauma really ruins people's lives. Um, but I wanted to address the fact that, yes, if we cherry-pick stories, there are people who appear that they've gone through trauma and had success. And I wanted to at least explain the nuance of that, I think, was, was the critical thing. So, you know, I, I didn't title today's session, and, and I guess... Um, but, you know, the, the thing that I would say is that beware of, beware of stories that have got the story arc of, of an X Factor five-minute musical narrative set to a Coldplay song because cause sometimes, they, uh, sometimes they might misdirect you to how easy getting back up is again. And the final one was the, the work uh, conversation that came remotely. I think, you know, look, it, the challenge of COVID is such that saying get together and, and spending time with each other, you know, might become a super spreader event. So I don't want to sort of get my responsibility for that. Um, I, I chatted to one organisation, do you know the Moth, True Stories Told Live, they sort of, they, they run a podcast, they run these storytelling nights. Their podcast is listened to two million times a year. But really beautiful podcast if you don't listen to it. It's like people turn up, they tell a story, beautiful. Anyway, they run sessions for corporate companies. And, uh, and I asked them, what was that about? Why, why do they run corporate sessions? Is it about just being better at PowerPoint? And they say, oh no, not remotely. We try and teach people storytelling skills because what we find is when people get together and they tell their stories to each other, the sense of connection they have 
he's just this becomes this really visceral emotional connection that suddenly a bit like your x factor sort of as soon as, as soon as we know someone's story we feel invested in them we feel that sense that we're all in it together so you know i think it's those moments of shared joy it's those moments of connection that make anything meaningful and you know when you say to someone the biggest predictor of whether they like their job whether they are happy in their job which is 40 hours a week for, for most of us, is having a best friend, it, it seems a bit trivial. You can't see CEOs caring about whether people have got a best friend. But for most of us, the lived experience of our job really sets the climate, it sets the weather for our lives. You know, if you've got a stressful job, then Sunday night becomes a thunderstorm. And, you know, lack of sleep becomes something that lives with you because you, your anxiety. And so I, I personally think it's a noble thing to try and find a way for people to have an experience of their job that is more human and, and more enjoyable, really. Amazing. Well, look, I'm aware we're at the end of our time. Um, so I would like to thank you. Thank I you would much. like to say that if you would like to hear Bruce, I think it's about six or eight hours if you did Audible. It's amazing. Almost you actually literally me. get this times by that time. <laughs> and, it, and, and so many of those amazing examples and the ability to dig deeper into all sorts of things, including the kind of generational side of things as well. So it, it's been an absolute pleasure so to have you here. I think we do have books here as well. So if those who are in the room would like to have a signed copy, I understand Bruce is happy to be signing as well, and you could buy those books. Um, if you are online um, as well, uh, by all means, uh, you can see this in the, in the watch back or pass it on and share it with others, comment on Twitter under that hashtag, RSA success success the best hashtag ever um, it's been a pleasure thank you all for coming here today at lunchtime it's been wonderful to see you and I uh, hope to see you all again thank you Bruce it's thank been you. incredible thank you thanks for listening if you like this podcast head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks interviews and animations